Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today is a returning favorite, Ramesh Panuru, who is a senior editor at National Review, a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, a visiting fellow at AEI, and a lieutenant commander in the Space Force. So, Ramesh, uh, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Real, real glad to be promoted from cadet. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, you know, it's a, it's a career open to talent. That's what, how, how they used to say. Um, so we wanted to talk to you because, uh, we recently had an election in this country. Uh, you might've, you might've noticed the good thing about elections is afterwards you get to have recriminations and, you know, the people who won and lost get to talk about, uh, you know, if they won, why they won. And if they lost, who's to blame and where to go forward from here. So we thought that uh, you, as a longtime observer of the political scene, particularly the conservative movement, the different factions within it, would be a good person to talk to about that. So maybe um, just to start, uh, who, who, who won the election? <laughs> uh, right. I suppose that is a contested issue. And that is one reason why this time, oddly enough, the recriminations seem to be more pronounced on the side that won the presidency than the side that didn't because there's a taboo in Republican circles on acknowledging that Biden beat Trump. Uh, And so the Democrats are, I think, a little bit further along in arguing about um, what happened at the sub-presidential level, uh, and in particular um, with the House races where they experienced really surprising losses um, than the Republicans are in trying to figure out where they are. Uh, But yes, I think uh, it is um, quite obvious that Biden won the presidential election. Um, But you didn't get a blue wave. You did not get, or at least it was countered by a a red wave. Um, And so um, he does not have the kind of liberal majority in Congress that a lot of people had been projecting. Yeah, it is interesting. This election, as you as you mentioned, uh, not totally, but there's a strange degree to where the left it seems like they're acting more like they lost, even though they did win the presidency, and the right it be it it may it may be a a defeat, uh, but it doesn't feel like a defeat, right? Of course, a lot of people don't believe it, that it was a defeat, but even, even, you know, among people who acknowledge, yes, uh, Biden is going to be the next president and whatnot, um, it was not a repudiation uh, exactly of the existing, you know, the, the last four years. And there are, of course, some elements that seem kind of uh, promising, uh, particularly the increased turnout among various minority groups, Hispanics, but even, I guess, African-Americans. And I saw some poll that 
Muslim support had for Trump had increased a, a, a great deal. I don't know how accurate that is. But so the, I guess the first question is, uh, well, I, the, the first question would be, I, might be how, how much stock can we put in some of those exit polls? Uh, polls are bad these days. But taking that as grand for a side, wh- what does that mean? How, like, how is it, how should that change our thinking uh, that after four years of Trump uh, and four years of, you know, kind of a constant uh, barrage of uh, uh, media commentary that the president was racist and xenophobic and many comments from the president himself that, you know, uh, uh, may not have always been the most well-advised, that... uh, he improved with all these groups that, you know, supposedly he hates and despises, right? So what happened there, do you think? Well, um, that's a great set of questions. Um, (laughs) I think you are right to caution against over-reliance on the exit polls, particularly the exit polls' um, findings about minority votes. However, we do have... uh, data about the geographic distribution of the vote, which does indicate that there was an increase in Trump's Hispanic support. I think we're going to have to wait a while before we have more reliable data about um, the national uh, Hispanic vote. Um, but we do, you know, we have data that uh, that's, is strongly suggests that in Texas and in Florida, um, there were uh, there was some pickup uh, from Hispanics. I think it, it suggests a couple of things. One, um, the, uh, the 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 claim that uh, Trump is a racist um, was not universally received um, by Hispanic voters and non-white voters generally. Um, just like white voters, they have divergent views on that matter. Uh, and on, you know, maybe they don't, maybe some of them who supported him don't uh, like every single thing he said that touched on race, but uh, but in many cases were willing to overlook it uh, or overcome it um, for other reasons. And the second thing, which may be <clears throat> of, of a little bit more long-term significance, is that the uh, the theory that Republicans had to be open to and supportive of, really, comprehensive immigration reform, um, including a reduction in the enforcement of the laws against illegal immigration and an increase in legal immigration and an amnesty for a lot of illegal immigrants, that they needed to be for all of that in order to get a hearing from Hispanics. Um, but that's been shown to be false. Um, that um, this was this is not a kind of uh, uh, single issue um, for uh, an awful lot of gettable Hispanic voters. Well, yeah. So if, if we look to what comes next, and I know you just wrote about this in National Review, if we if we look to where we go as as both the GOP, but also more broadly speaking, the conservative movement. Talk a little bit about that, and I guess, uh, in particular, what I'm sort of interested in is what are you know what are the what are the factions out there? Obviously, I think there's going to be sort of a, a a a struggle for control of the party, control of the movement. But 
you know, we can get into the, the particular players and candidates next, but what are sort of the, the broad factions out there that might become the coalition, the, the movement? So I actually think that there isn't even a ton of clarity about the factions because the debate among Republicans has progressed in such a peculiar way. To begin with, of course, Trump won in 2016 in a way that surprised a lot of Republicans, including his own supporters in many cases. And there, it wasn't clear what Trumpism meant. And then everything, every argument within the conservative movement and within the Republican Party ended up becoming an argument about Trump. You know, are you for him? Are you against him? If you're for him, are you for him enough? If you're against him, are you against him enough? Um, and so there's been a kind of uh, a kind of paralysis um, in the debate, and a lot of people have just sort of projected what they think would happen. So you've heard a lot over the last few years, at least I have, based on the things I read and the people I talk to, about uh, the idea that well, you know, if, if Trump loses in 2020, uh, there's going to be a huge effort among Republicans to just carry on as though it. Trump never happened, and then it's it's 2015 forever, and we're just going to go back to um, the the prior Republican orthodoxy. And I kept hearing people saying, "Well, there are going to be powerful forces that uh, that want to do that," but I actually don't ever hear people who say that they do want to do that. And I think that the case for doing that has been sort of blown away by the election. That's something that would have happened, maybe if there'd been a bloodbath, if Republicans had, um, you know, had lost the Kansas Senate seat uh, and and suffered huge um, down ballot losses, but that didn't happen. And so I think what you're instead going to have happen is a more kind of nuanced debate. I suspect people who are more sympathetic to the um, pre-Trump party will be trying to present it in a more Trumpian tone, uh, more aggressively, more combatively, um, and that people who will try who who are more sympathetic to the Trumpian policy mix, and we can talk a little bit about what that even means, will try to present it with maybe a little bit less Trumpy of an attitude, sort of try to flesh it out more and uh, and and try to divest it from some of the personally off-putting aspects of Trump. Just to kind of follow up on that briefly, do you think that that's, is the, is the takeaway that there's a set of policy issues or policy concerns, or is it more of the Trump, Trumpian combative tone that is sort of the the takeaway, but I guess that I mean I guess that's ultimately the the question. But what do you think the answer is? Well, I think this is the sort of question that is going to require political entrepreneurship to um, resolve. Right? I mean, we, it's it's just hard to say. Is there a so how much of Trump's success was um, owing to his celebrity status and the the particular kind of celebrity? that he enjoyed, how much of it was his break from various Republican orthodoxies, how much of it was his personality. And I, I, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that the answer is it was some combination of all of those things, but the exact proportion is a little hard to say. And, uh, and I think that's one of the things we're just going to find out as 
Republican politicians try to succeed him. One thing that I think is kind of interesting is the extent to which Trump as this looming presence may bias that conversation. So, you know, if he is talking about running for president for the next few years in in 2024, even if he ultimately doesn't, does he take some of the oxygen away from his would-be heirs and uh, and in that way actually kind of help the less Trumpy elements of the party? Yeah, I'm I'm always amused when people talk about a post-Trump situation as if once he's not president, he's going to be banished to the phantom zone or something, <laughs> as if he's not going to still be on our TVs all the time. I want to ask about the GOP as a working class party, right? Because this is something that you heard a lot of, uh, particularly after the election re- results, where again, uh, depending on how much you trust the exit polls, it definitely seems that there was a shift towards voters without college degrees, I, I guess you could say at least, right? Or at least, certainly among uh, white voters, more support among those who do not have college degrees, less support among those who do. And number of people said, well, you know, the GOP needs to rebrand as a working class party. Perfectly, perfectly fine thing. But it's not clear to me that there's really any, what the substance is beyond the the slogan or the brand. So what what are your thoughts there? Right. So um, the Republican Party has become more reliant over the years on the votes of uh, whites without college degrees and less reliant on the votes of whites with college degrees. So there's been a polarization based on education or schooling among whites. And, um, and it's, you know, you can read too much into that. You're right. That was a, that was a trend that predated Trump. Uh, and it's still a marginal trend. Uh, some people go get, get a little carried away, uh, by the idea that the Republican party is a working class party. I mean, let's not forget that, you know, if you, the exit polls, which a lot of, a lot of this speculation is based on suggest that Trump did, quite well among people making between a hundred and two hundred thousand dollars uh and did much worse among people making uh, people in households making less than a hundred thousand dollars um which you know may complicate what people mean when they talk about class i do think that it's important for the republican party that it is a potentially um promising strategy for the republican party um, to become less identified than it sometimes has been with the economic interests of of rich people and big business. And I, I think that it would be useful for conservatives and Republicans to think through what an agenda toward those goals might look like. Um, so I think that that might include a different approach to tax policy, um, one that is at least as focused on tax relief for middle-class parents as it is on cutting that top tax rate um, for individuals, which has been the focus of Republican tax policy for a very long time. Um, it might include a wide-ranging re-examination of federal policies in particular, but also state policies, 
that affect higher education. Um, maybe we need to think through opportunity ways of expanding opportunity for people that don't just involve trying to funnel as much uh, of our population and as much as of our money as possible to um, traditional institutions of higher education, um, which really has been the model for bipartisan education policy for two generations now. Um, I think it ought to include things like making housing more affordable. Now there, I think you've got a big problem of political economy, um, but you've got a real obstacle to upward mobility um, based on the cost of housing in particularly high growth areas of our country. So I think there's there's a lot of places you could go. Of course, um, there are conservatives and Republicans who believe that um, uh, immigration and trade are central to um, improving the lot of uh, the lower middle class or working class voters. Um, I think that that focus has been maybe a little bit excessive um, and some of the policy prescriptions are wrong. Uh, but I just, I, I think what we need more than anything is for conservatives and Republicans to sort of focus their thinking on what a new agenda might look like. Uh, so let me ask specifically about that and healthcare. Uh, there's someone, I, I wish I could remember who tweeted this because I thought it was clever. It said just before the election that it would have been better for the GOP if instead of finding Hunter Biden's laptop, they had found the laptop with their healthcare plan. And it does seem to me that healthcare is kind of an issue where the GOP has gotten itself stuck in a, uh, you know, between uh, different, uh, we, we can't really, it doesn't seem to be able to work its way out of uh, the hole that it's gotten itself into where it can't get rid of Obamacare, uh, it can't really replace Obamacare, and it's not really satisfying on where it stands with Obamacare. So... What what do you think the GOP can do, or the conservative movement in general can do, uh, in terms of health care that would be productive and not politically harmful to them? Uh, I think that Republicans need to do more advanced planning on health care than uh, they have been willing to do in the past. So one of the things that happened in the last few years is that congressional Republicans made a conscious choice in around 2014 not to have their own replacement plan for Obamacare. And one of the reasons for that was to avoid um, making an alternative plan a target of Democratic attacks. But the other was not to box in the eventual Republican presidential candidate and to give that candidate freedom of action. Um, I think, you know, we can all see the ways that did not work well. Um, so I think it's, I think it's important for Republicans to build up a consensus on what they want to do before um, getting to a position where they're governing and all of a sudden under the intense pressure of having to govern, um, they all have to sort of come up with a plan on the fly. Now, I'm one of many conservatives who thought um, that the priority ought to be 
overturning, replacing Obamacare, as it gets further and further in the rearview mirror, my policy preferences haven't really changed, but my view of what our priorities are have to some extent. And I do wonder whether maybe the thing to do, uh, the, the more important priority is to try to expand Medicare Advantage, the relatively market-based part of Medicare, um, which has been pretty successful. You know, we've got something like 21 million seniors enrolled in Medicare Advantage. They're highly satisfied with the coverage they've got. It seems to cost considerably less per enrollee. And I wonder if maybe we try to sort of work our way crabwise to entitlement reform by saying something like, um, we're going to make it possible for enrollees in Medicare Advantage to reap more of the savings themselves uh, and try to try to boost the market orientation of this entitlement that way. I mean, beyond that, I think you want to try to protect some of the deregulation that Trump was able to achieve, things like short-term limited duration insurance plans, association health plans, uh, and uh, uh, health reimbursement accounts. Um, some of that, I, I think, you know, you would be in the statutory weeds, um, and you'd have to wonder about some of the uh, uh, how the courts will handle some of these issues. Um, but the underlying problem for Republicans is they still don't they haven't figured out where they want to be, uh, especially on the question of pre-existing conditions beyond the level of a slogan. Yeah, you used an interesting word there a few minutes ago when you talked about consensus and uh, at least in terms of um, temperament and uh, sort of, you know, uh, themes, if you will. This this hasn't been a, a four years marked by consensus building. And, you know, my my impression of the more uh, Trumpian nationalist wing uh, among among Republicans is not that they're motivated to build a consensus, but frankly, sort of uh, they they seem to have a uh, uh, put a target on the back of one of your former uh, colleagues, David, David French and everyone of his ilk uh, trying to eliminate uh, those softies. So, is there what's the hope what's the you know what's the hope for building consensus it, you know we we have done you know uh, on the conservative side as you said this is sort of a split decision we lose the white house but we've made gains in the house we seem to have held the senate so we've kind of treaded water but how do we actually move forward and build a governing consensus a growing consensus you know what are the, what are the opportunities there and, and, and let me ask it this way, too, is, is there anyone that you see among uh, likely presidential contenders that has that type of skill set to actually lead a consensus? On the Republican side, I, I think that um, the great unifying force will be being in opposition. So conservatives of various stripes will, I think, be able to agree in opposing things that congressional Democrats and a Biden administration want. 
And to some degree, what it, it'll be necessary to actually sort of foment uh, disagreement, um, because I think it would be healthy to have an argument about what conservatives stand for and what we should be seeking um, if we're in government. Uh, and also, I think, an effort to make that disagreement as constructive as possible and as as little about sort of, you know, purging people for past sins, uh, you know, um, and uh, disagreements about personalities. As for who among the presidential candidates have that talent, um, I, you know, again, that's something that they have to demonstrate by actually being in the arena. And the th one thing that has is, is really struck me over the number of presidential races I have been, I have written about is just how off the conventional wisdom is about who the top contenders are. So for example, after the 2004 election, the early consensus in DC was that um, among the top contenders in the next presidential cycle on the Republican side would be George Allen and Bill Frist. And by two years later, not only were neither one of them in that top list of contenders, neither of them was even in public life anymore. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, when people talk about the various potential 2024 candidates, it just always strikes me that uh, it could be somebody nobody is thinking of. I mean, certainly in 2013, people were not thinking of Donald Trump as a front runner. Uh, for the Republican nomination. Uh, and so, you know, and, and by this is not to dismiss the chances of, uh, you know, Senator Cotton or Rubio or Hawley or Scott or uh, former Ambassador uh, Nikki Haley among the many people who are being talked about. But I do wonder whether maybe, you know, Governor Ducey, who has not been on many people's mm. radar, ends up being a much more formidable contender than people have been thinking. I think another interesting aspect of this is whoever, whoever's contemplating that run, as you, as you said, they're going to, they're going to be reacting to something, right? They're going to be reacting to the Biden Harris administration. And right now we're all speculating what that is. And I, I think a lot of people are trying to view um, this administration through a lens of what they sort of project Kamala Harris to be. But then there's Joe Biden, who's been much more of a traditional left of center Democrat. And I, and I think that the way the 2024 election is going to shape up probably is going to have a lot to do with how Joe Biden actually governs. Not that I expect him to run again. But that's what we're presumably, unless we're just sort of fear mongering about what a President Harris would do, it seems like you're going to have to run against Joe Biden's record. Do you think that that, you know, do you, th do you think that favors any of the, you know, any of the foreseeable candidates? Or again, is it really just a matter of just got to uh, see how it plays out? So, yeah, I mean, I think you, you do have to see how it plays out. And I think. You know, the Democratic side is going to have some pretty serious challenges here. Um, I do think that it is pretty clear uh, that Pennsylvania, 
and Wisconsin and Florida are all trending away from the Democratic Party, right? All of those states voted more Republican than the national average. Um, so if you have a, you know, if you have a situation where the Republican is getting 48, 49 percent of the um, national vote, it seems to me all three of those states are very, very likely to go Republican. Uh, now, at the same time, of course, we've all spent we've all paid enormous attention to states that are trending the other direction, North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona. But, you know, the question is, are they going to trend that way at the same speed as the other states are voting uh, for the Republicans? And it's kind of hard to see a figure on the Democratic side um, who is as sort of well-designed to maximize his support among both the old and the new Democratic coalitions as Joe Biden. Yeah. The the other thing that interests me is, uh, you know, Doug was talking about how in four years, the Republicans are going to have to run against Joe Biden's record or or whatnot. And the, uh, the thing that occurred to me was, well, what record? Because yeah. uh, normally what you have is when you have a new president, he comes in, he almost always has a favorable Congress uh, and is able to do a, a, all sorts of stuff in the first hundred days. And then there's some other wrangling and then people start talking, you know, at, then after 18 months, people start talking about the, the midterms and then the presidency is basically over. Uh, but in this case, it looks like just right out of the gate, Biden is going to face an opposition Senate, uh, a, a very narrow, the Democrats will hold the House, but it'll be very, very narrow. Uh, the courts are probably less favorably disposed towards, you know, being able to do a bunch of stuff through executive action than they have been in a generation or two. So, I mean, I, I this, I think some... Democrats and left-wing folks have expressed a, a bit of dismay about what exactly, if anything, are they going to be able to get done? Right. Yeah. So we have the first, um, so I'm assuming that Republicans have um, control of the Senate. I think that's likely. Even if they don't, the, the Democratic majority would be so, so thin and so dependent on you know Joe Manchin and uh, and Kristen Cinema that it would be almost like not having control of the Senate at all. Um, so this will be the first time you've had an incoming president without a Senate majority controlled by his party since 1989 and George H. W. Bush. Now the first president Bush was uh, stymied at every turn really by the Democratic. Congress, and particularly by the Senate Majority Leader at the time, George Mitchell of Maine. Uh, I, but we now, but what's changed, of course, since 1989 is we have a much, much more polarized partisan environment. Um, it, there's much, much more party line voting in the Congress. I wonder whether this sort of solves one set of problems for Biden and creates another. Uh, so during that entire period since 1989, we've had one president after another elected with control of the Congress, right? Four in a row uh, elected with control of the Congress. 
and then um, they've they've lost that control. Uh, either it, more more commonly in year two, um, sometimes in year six. And George H. George, excuse me, George W. Bush had a you know sort of different circumstances because of nine eleven. And I wonder if you are prevented from that cycle of majority party overreach followed by popular backlash because you're just not in a position to overreach in the first place. But then on the other side of maybe you run into the problem of an extraordinarily frustrated Democratic base uh, and infighting among Democrats about why things are not happening, why the president isn't being, you know, isn't isn't accomplishing things. Uh, because one thing we have seen also during this whole period is that partisans tend not to take adequate account of uh, the existence of opposition power centers. I mean, you remember how much frustration there was among Tea Partiers in 2011 and 2012, uh, and they believed in some cases, they acted as though they believed the Republicans should be able to get their way, even though they didn't have the Senate or the White House. Uh, and I think you could see something similar happen on the left. Yeah, right. And I, I guess the sort of the, the, the thought there um, that, that I was sort of teasing out is if the Biden administration um, tends to work towards the middle, uh, is stymied um, through gridlock. Um, it seems to me that probably doesn't bode well for the the sort of Trumpian playbook, if you will, uh, of trying to make them look more radical. Unless you can project that that radical, you know, the, project that the next candidate that's going to be after Biden is going to be the real radical that we all need to be afraid of. Um, but I guess moving back towards what's happening on the on the right. Is there, uh, you know, what, what we and I think I, before the show I mentioned that we just had on uh, your your colleague Kevin Williamson, and uh, we were discussing his new book, uh, Big out. White All Ghetto. All the negative Bump. stuff he said about you, by the way. Yeah, we All did. We did. Uh, so we talked about his book, The Big White Ghetto, which is mostly about white poverty. But then in the podcast, we also talked about urban policy and Republicans not doing well in, in cities. And I guess there's my question is, is there a, you know, is there a way or what is the way that the Republican Party can sort of hold together um, a coalition that Trump is starting to build uh, that that sort of speaks to the working class, yeah. but maybe pivots and actually starts making inroads in cities? So wait, was Kevin talking trash about me? Because... That's going to go on his permanent record. At Kevin, uh, <laughs> uh, that, that, that seems unlikely. Well, you can talk to me after the recording, and we'll. <laughs> we'll um, so both party coalitions are complicated, hard to hold together, uh, and and post difficult tasks of coalition management because. Uh, they're primarily held together by opposition to the other side, fear of and hostility to the other side, rather than being held together by any shared uh, political philosophy or policy objective. On the Republican side, I tend to think of the conservative coalition as one that has three principal groups, 
let's say the national populace to 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 uh, use a simplifier, um, working class whites primarily, um, who are not especially interested in uh, banning abortion or shrinking the federal government, um, are skeptical of trade uh, and immigration. Um, you've got business-oriented moderates, uh, you know, the sort of people who often get described as country club Republicans. And then you've got kind of uh, Tea Party conservatives, you know, consistent, let's say, fusionist conservatives socially and economically. Um, so getting all those three groups together um, is tricky. And then you add in the fact that you add all three groups up and they're not a majority of the country. They're just an extraordinarily large minority. Uh, that's the challenge for Republicans. I don't think that any one of those factions is in a position where it, um, you know, has veto power over everything, let alone gets its way on everything. It's always going to be hard um, to keep those things together. And one of the things that you're looking for in the presidential candidate in 2024 is somebody who can manage it, manage it deftly. Uh, earlier, we were talking about the, the need of the Republican Party to uh, sort of maintain its, uh, you know, its working class uh, demographics, if you will. Um, but we also talked about, you know, there's there's a, a wing of the party that's been pro-business. But I'm old enough to remember Reagan, and it seemed to me that he was someone that was able to both appeal to what was then called Reagan Democrats. That was what my dad was. I mean, he was a member of a union, been a Democrat his whole life, and and ever since Reagan has been a Republican, but Reagan, most people are thinking about Reagan. If we look back, they think about him as being this pro-business guy, right? But I still remember Reagan enough as being somebody that maybe not in the same type of Trumpian nationalism, but was flag-waving, patriotic, that appealed to blue-collar workers while also appealing to sort of that Wall Street crowd. Is there... Is there anyone out there in terms of, you know, the, the political, you know, the, the front runner candidates that seems to have that type of talent to bring everybody back together? Yeah. So um, it's actually, it's, it's striking. If you look back at Reagan's rhetoric and Henry Olson has done this, that, that Reagan actually didn't celebrate American businessmen uh, quite as much as later Republicans did, um, that he was just as much likely, maybe even more likely to talk about, um, the guy working on the floor than, um, than the one in the suite. Uh, and it was only later. Uh, and I think it, I would argue that it was a particularly pronounced issue in the, the early Obama years that Republicans were quite as rhetorically focused on um, job creators, entrepreneurs, and innovators um, as they eventually became. So yeah, I think that's important to, to cast that broad net. And to, and to return to the earlier question that I, that I was not answering, you know, in, in terms of talking about cities and talking about non-whites, I mean, you know, you, you have to ask for the vote um, and you have to be seen as, uh, as, as asking um, for everybody's vote, um, as not a, being sort of an exclusive club um, that doesn't want you as a member. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see um, which 
presidential candidates um, do that. I think Senator Rubio is sort of temperamentally inclined to make that kind of appeal. But uh, other Republicans, you know, we, we have to wait and see. I mean, Nikki Haley, for example, she's had a different kind of portfolio the last few years, foreign policy. And um, she's only been kind of dipping her toe in the water about national policy um, outside of that. Uh, but, you know, we're, we'll see whether uh, whether she and others can find that uh, uh, that more inclusive pitch. So uh, we've been talking a lot about, you know, different policies, what, you know, what should the policy agenda be and what's going to happen if not a lot gets done in Congress because of gridlock and so on and so forth, which is a, a not a new problem, of course. But one thing that I wonder is so something that struck me about the Trump years is how much of the political discussion uh, really only had a vague connection to any sort of policy or governing hook. I think, for example, of the very long, in-depth national conversation and debate we had about whether football players should... I think I think we talked about that on the last podcast, actually. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, yes, right, right. Uh, So, you know, there you have an issue that it doesn't really, it's not like there was going to be a piece of legislation filed or some sort of government action. Trump wasn't going to send the National Guard into, you know, the stadiums to uh, ensure that people stood for the the, uh, National Anthem. But it didn't seem to matter to people, right? They enjoyed, uh, they enjoyed talking about it and condemning people who took other views. And it was just like a regular political issue in that respect. And so I wonder to what extent is, are we just kind of missing the boat and talking about policy and you don't really have to have specific political issues. The the people can just talk about whatever the cultural stuff is of the day. And that will be, that will be politics, right? That's a terrible take. We've got three policy guys sitting around. Surely, surely the answer is, the future all belongs of, to the, the policy. All of the million viewers of Irving Cowboys accepted, of course. Well, I mean, you guys cut our monetary policy discussion from my. <laughs> I, don't, you know, I don't think I've forgotten that. I, I do. I actually. It's very exciting when you're talking about the Wixellian interest rate and. Yeah. Uh, uh, for some reason, you guys thought that uh, that your listeners. Um, there, there is going to be a butt plug uh, on the Federal Reserve. Uh, Quite possibly soon, uh, we could we could talk about that if you would if you would rather. No, I, I no, I do think actually that the, the the question that you asked is a really important one because um, I do think a lot of the Republican Party and conservative movement at every level, top to bottom, elites and activists and rank and file voters to some extent, have moved into this kind of post policy uh, place. Um, I think that there's there's. Politics always has an important symbolic element, um, but it can't be everything. Uh, and when you don't actually have a sense of what you want the government to do, uh, I think you're setting yourself up for for more and more frustration because there will always be other cultural grievances that come up. You won't be able to compromise um, and get anything done. Uh, because there's nothing you want to get done in the first place that you know that you've spelled out. 
Um, you haven't sort of gone to the effort of, uh, of reaching a consensus on any issue. Um, so I think this has been, this has been a gathering problem on the right for some time. And frankly, I don't know, uh, how to solve it. You know, when, when some of us, uh, 10, five, five, 10 years back, were trying to come up with a new conservative agenda. When I started, I thought the problem was an old, stale uh, conservative agenda that no longer spoke to people. And, you know, like to some extent that was true, but the bigger problem uh, turns out to have been the sense that no agenda is needed at all. Uh, and and that is uh, is a really hard problem to overcome. Uh, I hate to end on that. That sounds so bleak. It sounds so bleak. Have you not been paying attention to 2020? <laughs> 2020's ending all right, though, right? In a way, you know, you've got the w- conservatives have vo- avoided the worst possible outcome. Uh, and vaccines are on the way. Fair so, enough, enough. I mean, not, not that it's all going to be roses from here on in, but uh, I do, I, you know, just sure looks like the next few weeks are going to be actually quite hard. Um, but I think we can look to 2021 with, uh, with less trepidation than uh, we might have felt. All right. Well, thank you again for, uh, for, for joining us again. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Irving Cowboys.